Hello everyone. Before we begin, we would like to issue a brief content warning. The novel and movie we are discussing today is Deliverance, and if you know anything about the novel or the movie, you know that a central event in it is a fairly explicit scene of rape. We will be discussing this rape as it pertains to both the novel and the movie. So if you find yourself feeling uncomfortable with the prospect of listening to this discussion, please feel free to skip this episode and join us again in our next episode where we'll be discussing Nightmare Alley. Thank you. Um, Eric, do you want to do the Yep, I'll I'll re-intro? do Oh man, we got we got the Ollie wiggle like when we're actually on a break and not and... Jenny, we always have, a, we always have, you can always hear my dog's collar at least once in our podcast. Um, yeah, I'll introduce this. Welcome to the Projectionist Lending Library. I am here today to talk with you about deliverance. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with my co-host, Nathaniel Booth. And we have a special guest with us today, my friend from the South and my interest with the Southern Studies, Dr. Jenny Lightwise-Goff. Yeah. Hi, I'm a lecturer of English at the University of Mississippi where I teach a little bit of everything, film, literature, gender studies, and urban studies, uh, which is perhaps most relevant to this book. I was going to say like all of those things are super relevant. This, this, no wonder yeah. that this book, yeah. I'm glad that we have you on for this. Well, uh, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff in the book. I, I'm really fascinated by the movie. And, you know, as both of you know, and as listeners may know, some of my um, research with like freak shows and like what I call like the freak South and stuff is just leaping out of the page and out of the screen along with what you said a lot with like kind of embodiment going on in this book and stuff too so um, welcome to the country of the nine-fingered people as yes <laughs> in the book yeah, yeah. Oh, that, um, that hits close to home i think i i think i've known several nine-fingered people at different points in my life Sure. I mean, you know, I, I spent part of my childhood in Oconee mm-hmm. County, South Carolina, which is mm-hmm. a part where, where some of the film was was shot, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those places where, you know, you turn on your GPS and it says you're driving on a winding road and it's like, welcome to South Carolina, welcome to North Carolina, welcome to Georgia, right? Like, it's that mm-hmm. part of the Blue Ridge Mountains. During my childhood, we got we got 911 service, right? Mm-hmm. We named yeah. all of the roads. Um, I remember that. I remember that really vividly. So you know, some of these, the like the freak show elements, the falling down houses, Ed Gentry staring in the window and seeing like the ill child, like all of those things were still present in the '80s and early '90s um, in this mm. part of South Carolina, of, of of not just South Carolina, but the Blue Ridge Mountains. So. Wow. Yeah. And we'll talk about that when we get to the movie, but a a lot of the stuff when they're in the town or at the gas station, a lot of that is all local people. I'm interested in the sort of rhetoric around that. 
Well, let me ask you, Jenny, because um, when we had reached out to you asking if you would want to join us, you were like, I would love to do deliverance. So could you just kind of start us off explaining why you're so fascinated by this book? I mean, I get the sense that part of it is from your childhood and kind of growing up in this area and your interest. But could you just talk a little bit more about just why you're drawn to this work? I mean, I think it's... um you know, so I'm not native to Appalachia, but when I was a kid, my parents moved from kind of like bridge and tunnel, New York and New Jersey to the Blue Ridge Mountains for, for my dad's job. And it was sort of like the height of the Sunbelt period. My dad worked in precious metals refinery. And I remember joke after joke about this movie, which I was like not familiar with. And, uh, you know, what we didn't realize is that we were not just moving to Appalachia, we were moving to the setting of this film. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so and then I went to college at University of South Carolina, where at the time, uh, James Dickey was still the writer in residence. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And by that point, actually, like he was dying. And um, mm. he's he's just he's a remarkable figure in, in the South. And I think also a remarkable figure in kind of mid-century American literature. Because he has this incredibly distinguished career as a poet. I mean, some of his some of his poetry like lives in my imagination. To the last Wolverine, in particular, which I think is just, please, if you're listening to this, look uh, up on YouTube. James Dickey reading to the last Wolverine. But this book became his legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Even though uh, I think a lot of his friends, a lot of critics, um, the people he worked with at South Carolina, think of him still as a poet. So there's always, you know, what makes your fame and what makes your reputation. And this book, which is a punchline in mm-hmm. many parts of the South, made the reputation of this amazing writer um, who was Poet Laureate under uh, Jimmy Carter, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, he was definitely like, you know, he worked at the Library of Congress for a long time. He did all of these, you know, kind of various jobs about like public outreach with poetry. But then this is the book that people remember. And then I would also say... I'm interested in like in your podcast because I think there are tremendous differences between the book and the film that create and deflate its reputation. If that makes sense as a mm-hmm. novel, yeah. And it's weird because there's very large differences between the the book and the movie, but the plot is quite similar i mean you know what i mean if we're looking at like faithful adaptation if you want to just go by like well it follows the plot a lot of the lines are directly out of the movie but just the overall like tone and tenor and the sort of like bigger what it's all about seems to shift quite a bit nathaniel you um we we read this together in um andy crank's class while we were still doing our phd what was it like for you to revisit this book it was a really strange experience because I know for a fact that I read the book in in the class we took together, and I started reading the novel for the podcast, and I could not remember any of this. Like I was reading it, I was like, I don't, I don't remember all of this stuff about the girl with the the golden fleck near her eye. I don't remember it being so man in the in the gray flannel suit in the first few pages and then it got to the part that the movie adapts and I was like oh okay I remember this part and then it got to the end and the last few pages where they're doing their setup I didn't remember that at all so like literally the part I remembered was the part that was adapted in the movie even though I'm 
98% certain I actually did read the book because I remember talking about it with you. Well, I mean, when you're in coursework, though, you, 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 we all develop a remarkable ability to talk about things we only kind of read, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess part of that too is probably the conflation of mm. the book and the movie. It's, it's hard to think about the book without thinking about the movie but the the before and after is kind of what you're talking about you don't remember yeah yeah and it's interesting because we talk about the difference between the the movie and the book and we'll be getting into this later but it's really interesting to me that dickie wrote the screenplay uh dickie wrote the script but then the rape scene is ad-libbed and so um you know when i've taught this book in the past or taught about this book nobody believes me when i tell them the pig line is not in the book Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know why that pig line exists? Because it was originally going to be a lot more. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what word to use. Just stereotypical language of like fuck and cock and stuff like that. But the mm -hmm. censors were like, no, you can't have that language. And so they kind of pitched it to the. I don't remember the actor that plays the mountain man. And so he kind of yeah he ad libbed this line and this. It wasn't even supposed to be this. It was supposed to be much more like I said stereotypical kind of profane language. But that he it's ironic because the because he couldn't do that. He has these lines that are way more fucked up and haunting and remarkable. And yeah, I mean, as you said, Jenny, everybody knows that line. Right. And I'll be and I want to be clear about this. So like Bill McKinney, who um, who plays the mountain man um, and Ned Beatty, who, uh, of course, plays the person who sexually assaulted. They yeah. So they ad lib this. And there are many different versions of the story. Right. So um, Christopher Dickey, who's James Dickey's son, wrote a remarkable uh, memoir called uh, Summer of Deliverance um, about making this film. Um, and he was Ned Beatty's stand in on the film. And so Christopher Dickey describes this like really jocular and kind of gross um, vibe around shooting that, right? And how in fact, like he was sort of corrupted by it because he had been like over the log for these like huge periods of time, right? Because he was the stand-in, not the actual actor. And so he describes how in essence, like it kind of like sticks to him like a taboo, right? Like mm -hmm. on, on set. Um, and so he describes this really uh, gross energy, right? Kind of like a frat house energy. Um, but then Ned Beatty, I think, has talked about it in a quite different way. Yeah. So he, he wrote a New York Times op-ed called um, Suppose Men Feared Rape, um, in which he describes, he says, like, you know, I'm the only man in America who is routinely catcalled and describes, in essence, like, the, he says, like, people threaten me with rape every day because of these, like, screams of squeal like a pig. And it's a very serious piece of writing and what i didn't understand until much later uh as i was like as the context of it becomes clear what's creepy about that piece <laughs> is not just that he's so routinely hectored but that he wrote this piece with the headline suppose men feared rape in the wake of the central park jogger case because it was like a special issue of the new york times right like they had like a bunch of pieces on sexual assault if, if i'm understanding that correctly because i i just learned about that article and and that whole thing last night as i was watching all these special features and behind the scenes stuff um and you're right ned Beatty describes it as being really kind of careful the and what what what, what did you say the mountain man's actor's name is bill mckinney 
Bill McKinney that he was like really and, and there's an interview with him where he's like, I felt really weird because at the one hand, I'm like wanting to protect him and make sure everything is OK. And like so that's these two kind of very conflicting narratives about um, how that was all shot. So, yeah, um, Nathaniel, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, since you um, didn't remember the the kind of man in the gray flannel suit parts of it, uh, how did you respond to those? Because I want to be clear, like that is my favorite part of the book, actually, is um, before they go to the mountains. Why is that your favorite part of the book? Um, I think it's the tension um, between the suburbs and actually like the Atlanta suburbs in particular and uh, the country that they're going to, right? You know, Nathaniel calls it the man in the gray flannel suit. And and I think actually like it is a very mid-century piece of writing, right? It's about uh, kind of the domestication of the American man. Um, There are also uh, you know, he describes also like Atlanta as a regional city. Ed runs this advertising firm and in it, you know, he's the artist. He's one of the artists, right? And there are other self-serious artists in this Atlanta advertising firm who failed to make it in New York. So there's also this reflection on the big city versus the regional city. There's a beautiful moment too where uh, he's getting a ride out to their meeting point for the canoe trip. And he passes a place where like sort of a, a suburban like maybe a Dairy Queen or like if you can imagine like a Sonic or like, I don't know, it's it's this, it's 60s Atlanta. So it might even be waitresses on roller skates like <laughs> coming to your car window, right? And he sees this and he remembers the last time he was disablingly drunk and it had been right there. He had been coming back from a Christmas party and he'd gotten out and, um, and uh, thrown up so violently that uh, everyone was looking out their car window at him. And he sees this kind of like, pole with the sign on it and he and he just remembers like retching and actually describes like needing to get out of the city as a form of like alternative consciousness that's like commensurate with drunkenness and and getting high well and and that part of that is um that it's very much based in this idea of in that before section all this language it's very existential kind of language like there's a lot of despair there's there's a lot of just that idea of oh what's this all for yes as he's talking about his advertising he's talking about like people doing all this hack work and very mid-century idea that like what's this all for you're right that I, I think that is a place that though it's only what probably 15 20 pages out of the novel it really sets a different kind of tone for the book and like kind of what the book seems to be interested in exploring. Right. So the first thing you hear in the movie is Ned Beatty's big laugh, right? Um, and it actually plays over the like the studio logo. And instead, what we get in the novel is this piece where Ed Gentry's mind is a habitable place for us as readers. Um, so there's, I think, very little of that consciousness in the book, or in the novel, rather. So we don't get Ed's reflection on how, you know, he has sex with his wife right before he leaves for the canoe trip. And she asks, like, do you have to do things like this? Is it my fault? And, you know, he says, like, it's it's not your fault, but it's every woman's fault. <laughs> um, so there are these kind of reflections on, on mid-century gender relations, which I want to note, like, I think about this book as very much a product of second wave feminism, mm-hmm. even though Dickie is one of those problematic male writers who uh, women critics like me often hate, to which I respond, fine, ladies, more for me. 
<laughs> it's it was a weird sort of experience for me because it reminded me so much of Rabbit Run that I started having I started maybe channeling the anger I feel towards Rabbit Run into this novel because I I frankly found the characters uh, mostly somewhat insufferable <laughs> as uh, as people. You know, that's fine. You can have unlikable characters in books. That's that's permitted. But they were insufferable in a particularly like John Updike sort of way. And it, and so it it grated me just a little bit. But one of the things I I do appreciate, and it's something that y'all touched on, and we can probably continue this train of thought as a thread is the way in which Ed does have so much more interiority than he gets in the movie or than anyone gets in the movie. The movie is, I timed this, the first close-up in the movie is like five minutes in. It takes a long time for them to get to a close-up in the movie. The movie makes a play for being much more sort of objective in a way. And the the book doesn't. The book, especially later on when Ed is climbing up the side of the cliff and he has this weird mystical sexual experience with the cliff where he's he's having sex with nature, almost almost literally described in those ways. He moved in a way that he never would have moved with his wife or with any other woman is the sentence. Uh, and so I really appreciate that. And I think that that, that sort of the opening sort of it is helped by that fact that later on this interiority gets developed more. If any of that makes sense, I don't know. It does, and I'll, I'll just—I I, want to make a, a criticism of the movie in, in order mm. to see this. So, so I interpret Ed Gentry as completely suicidal, and that's one of the mm. reasons he's going to uh, the the woods with Lewis. And Lewis has all of these fantasies about the apocalypse, so they're very death-oriented, right? Death-driven, mm -hmm. and the actors are too young. That's my criticism. Right. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I agree. And so, in fact, like James Dickey wanted Marlon Brando to play Lewis, of course, um, and um, floated Gene Hackman or Jack Nicholson to play Ed Gentry. Now, granted, these actors aren't much older than John Voight, but they're those actors who were never young. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a, a, I think, a specific kind of American male actor. Mm -hmm. um, and if they were a little older, I think we'd get more of the sense of what he has in the city and what he's escaping. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll, I'll point out, you know, when he that that cliff scene where you describe him like having the yeah. sexual experience with the cliff, things he would do to no other woman. He is also having a mind meld, as he describes it, with the man that he's hunting. Uh, it's, it's, it's fundamental to the to the novel that Lewis kills the man who raped Bobby and mm -hmm. Ed kills the man who would have raped him. And, you know, he describes as he, he's like, you know, we would have made a strange kind of love as he calls it. And he would have taken a sort of nauseating pleasure from it. So he has to know that as he's hunting him, he has to sort of get into his mind as we're getting into his mind. Um, and it's not until he kills him that he actually describes that as like severing the link between them that mm -hmm. makes it possible for him to listen. And once he looks at looks down at his dead body, he says, you can do what you want to. Nothing is too terrible. I can cut off the genitals he was going to use on me. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just that he's in that he's in tune with nature. 
he is fully like imbricated in the mind of the man who would have raped him. And to go back to the before section, I mean, at the very end of the before section, and he's talking about, you know, this when he, this line where he's talking about, um, I don't think this is just the woman that he sees. This isn't his wife at this point, right? Where, but he, uh, something went through me a deep and complex male thrill, as if something had touched me in the prostate. That that that, that the homoerotic connection that happens with later in the book and how he's already kind of thinking in those terms in the yeah. before section, but like in a almost unconscious kind of way. Well, I mean, he's also obsessed with Lewis. Uh, when they go skinny dipping, it's, he says, uh, I looked at him for I had never seen him without his clothes on. And he he's constantly talking about his pectorals and his biceps and the veins. There's There's a lot of homoeroticism between the narrator and and lewis so he also says when he looks at lewis he says the reward for all the work he's done is in my eyes yes so there's yeah. really um and then to get very close reading about it there are two descriptions of genitals in the book mm. and one is when bobby stands up after the sexual assault and it describes his genitals as um wasted with pain mm-hmm and then just a few a few days later, or a few pages later, rather, when they have the canoe accident, Ed has to pull Lewis out of the canoe, and he says he feels his penis stirring with pain yes. against his hand. Um, so those are the two genital descriptions, right? And both are responses to pain. Right. right. Bobby is wasted and Lewis is stirring. With all of this explicit and implicit homoeroticism in the book, why I'd love to hear more about how you see this as a product of second wave feminism. Right. So um, this is coming at a period of radical changes to rape law. And one of the things that happens in this period is um, a variety of states reform their laws so that you no, no longer need a witness. So uh, one's account of rape becomes um, central to how we imagine rape. Right. Rather than this kind of witness, I sort of like Kitty Genovese, uh, the famous case where the various bystanders observe the sexual assault in a uh, queen's courtyard. Right. So there's that that change. And then there's a moment where Lewis actually uh, makes this explicit when they're trying to decide what to do with the mountain man's body. He doesn't think anything will happen to them. Drew, who we really need to talk about. Drew is the voice of reason, right? And he keeps saying, like, you know, we, we can just go to town and just and just tell them that they were sexually assaulting, which is the term. He says sexually assaulting. He does not use another term. Um, so in, in in fact, like Drew is careful. But Lewis says the penalty for this is death. That's absolutely right in a lot of states at the time. And interestingly, the thing that no one ever recollects is that the feminist anti-rape movement, perhaps best characterized by Susan Miller's Against Our Will, which is a book that comes out around the same time as the film, the feminist anti-rape movement actually petitions or, or, or campaigns, rather, to decrease penalties for rape. And there are myriad reasons for this. Um, but I think, as we know, uh, strong penalties and punishments for rape are the products of patriarchal structures, um, because rape is an offense against the woman's father or her, her husband. So mm -hmm. that's like uh, one issue. And the other issue is that the higher the penalty for rape, the harder it is to get a, a sentence. So there's an attempt to actually decrease the kind of legal punishment so that it will be more possible 
to actually have women give testimony and to get get a conviction. And, you know, it's one thing that's seldom mentioned. You know, I, I remember I was first teaching uh, the year that Kobe Bryant had been accused of rape in Colorado. And Colorado still had a life penalty, life without parole penalty for rape at that time, mm-hmm. which made all of the events that followed inevitable, right? <laughs> that the woman stops cooperating, that, you know, there are, you know, there's this public outcry. And so, yes, feminist anti-rape uh, movements were about decreasing penalties for rape, to make it easier to get a conviction. And I think that's, com- that's like the thing that's completely forgotten. Like no other generation of men, I suppose our, our, our generation and our time is haunted by extinction. And I think we have an indication of what is, very, is quite likely to happen to us in the extinction of any animal species. Uh, anyway, this is about that. For the last Wolverine, they will soon be down to one, but he still will be for a little while. Still will be stopping the flakes in the air with a look, surrounding himself with the silence of whitening snarls. Let him eat the, the last red meal of the condemned to extinction, tearing the guts from an elk. Yet that is not enough for me. I would have him eat the heart, and from it have an idea stream into his gnawing head that he no longer has a thing to lose, and so can walk out into the open in the full pale of the subarctic sun where a single spruce tree is dying higher and higher. We usually do this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but a very quick <laughs> rundown of just what happens in this book for for, for listeners that haven't heard it. Um, I mean, it is because of the movie kind of pop culturally known in some ways, but probably in a very kind of uh, two-dimensional way. So there's these four guys and all four of them, as I've come to understand, are often read as sort of different versions and different anxieties of Dickie himself. And they, as we discussed, live in the suburbs of Atlanta. One of them, Lewis, who's this Ultraman, and he's yeah, he's a survivalist and outdoors person and everything. And, and as Jenny said, he's he's kind of what we would call now like a prepper. Uh, mm-hmm. So like part of part of his masculinity is tied up in anxieties of society and falling apart. And and then our our narrator Ed is as we've discussed, kind of um, confused, and he goes with them and then their two other friends drew and bobby who we'll talk more about and they go on the they go on a canoe trip through a river in north georgia that's going to be dammed up and while they're there they encounter two local appalachian men a sexual assault on bobby happens from one of the mountain men lewis kills the guy um the other guy gets away and then there's sort of the second half of the river journey is sort of there's this guy out in the woods watching us. He shoots Drew. And that's a lot more explicit in the book that that he's he is, in fact, shot. Where in the movie, it's unclear mm-hmm. if Drew is, in fact, shot by this guy or not. And then Ed has to go hunt him, basically. Right. And so the sexual assault um happens, uh, I think, in, and this is true in both the movie and the book, because they change canoe partners, okay? Mm-hmm. So initially, it's Drew and Ed, 
and Lewis and Bobby. And Lewis keeps yelling at Bobby. He's actually really a jerk to Bobby. Bobby is Ed's friend, right? Um, so they shuffle the canoe organization so that it's Lewis and Drew. Drew is the best of us, as Ed says, when they're burying him, gentle, even-tempered. And so if Lewis is being a jerk, it'll bounce off of him. Bobby, on the other hand, is a person who has no emotional control, which they've established early in the book. Ed has seen him drunk and screaming with the rage of a weak king, as it's described. Mm -hmm. So now Ed and Bobby are in the canoe together. And they actually have to port the canoe at some point. Is that what it's called? Portage? Portage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not a canoe person, despite growing up near the Chattooga River, uh, where this is set. Um, and when they're porting the canoe, that's when they encounter the mountain men. They are alone long enough for one of them to sexually assault Bobby. And it is when Ed is about to be sexually assaulted that Lewis and Drew creep up on them. In the book, Ed sees an arrow pierce the man who's unbuttoning his fly. Right? Mm -hmm. And in the movie, Ed has one eye on the man who's unbuttoning his fly and the other on Lewis as he draws back the bow and arrow. So the, the sexual assault happens because Ed and Bobby are together. The, yeah. the assumption is that Drew or Lewis could have protected them. What do you make of these two simultaneous but very different forms of penetration? And how that's like relating to male embodiment, because obviously, could I, could yeah. I get you to, could I, could I get you to clarify when you say simultaneous, but very different forms of penetration, do you mean the, the rape and then the arrow going through the guy's chest or the fact yes. that Ed was about to be assaulted in a way that was very different from what Bobby just got assaulted? Yeah. Speaking specifically to the rape of Bobby and then the murder of the other one and how it's like the, how the arrow is described or how we see the arrow in this long drawn out death in the movie. So I guess what I mean is like there are two forms of penetration and one is deeply emasculating while the other seems to be, I don't know, it's like an achievement for Lewis. Well, I mean, you, you could almost take this in the old Roman direction, right? It comes down to who's doing the penetrating. If, if someone's being penetrated, it's emasculating. If someone's doing the penetrating, then it's uh, empowering. And so what Lewis is doing here is he's asserting that he's more man than, uh, than the guy that he shoots. Although it's interesting because he's almost immediately in the next big sort of action set piece, he's almost immediately symbolically castrated because uh, he has his, his leg broken. I, I think in that case, it's it is it's about who's doing the penetrating and who's receiving it uh, in terms of this contest of masculinity, which is also part of the before the rape, right? So there are, I mean, there are myriad references to, well, I mean, I don't know. There are let's say homoerotic references rather than references to sodomy. I don't like that term, um, but uh, there are a lot of references to it. Uh, you know, Eric mentioned that like touch on the prostate that he feels when he looks at a beautiful girl. Right after that, he actually sees the girl's brown eye with the gold sliver. He pictures it in the middle of his wife's back as they have sex from behind. And then, you know, once he's, and, and by the way, in that sequence where he's waking up before the canoe trip, the wife keeps saying, you're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. <laughs> Even though there's no reason to think that someone will die in a canoe trip. And Ed affirms, if I have to be identified by what I'm going to wear, I'm going to get this 
like fancy shirt. Like, you know, there's just references to death and homoerotic <laughs> um, desire, which are linked in the book, of course. And then once they're on the mountain to, to kind of like fuse these two forms of like violent penetration, the first morning when they wake up, Ed tries to kill a deer and misses the shot. And he says to Lewis, I was thinking about you. And Lewis says, don't think about me when you're trying to kill the deer, right? So, you know, there are all, there are these, there's a way that like desire and violence are linked throughout the book. Is, Can we talk about the unpersoning of Bobby? Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what do you, what do you mean? This is, it, uh, I think I'm borrowing that term from Orwell, right? How in, in an uh, unpersoning, um, in an autocratic regime, you can become uh, a not person if you speak out against it. And, um, you know, Bobby is, Remo- he loses his personhood at the moment that he's raped. Um, it's slightly different in the book, where you, or in the movie rather, where you, because you're looking rather than reading, you can see the way Drew, who is the good man, um, and of course the best of them is dies first. How Drew touches his back and tries to comfort him. You see Ed actually helping him into his pants in the in the film, but in the in the novel. Ed makes it clear none of this was his fault, but he was he was like less to me. Right. And, and then curiously too, the parts when we're in Ed's consciousness, he's weirdly fixated on Bobby, Bobby's ass. Right. He calls him an an, an incompetent ass, useless country club man. He refers. He's like you know, get your useless ass at one point, getting his useless ass into the canoe. He's describing how pink he looks. You know, none of this was his fault, but he seemed he looked so willing to let anything be done during the rape. Bobby is you know not really a human being anymore to Ed, um, and that is to psychologically protect himself. In order to think I cannot be assaulted, he has to say like only a non-person would be assaulted in this way. And I want to be clear: that's the reason why I don't teach the book anymore. Because many, many people believe that, right? Right. In order to make sure that it could never happen to me, I have to say that it only happens to repulsive people. And in this case, by repulsive people that similarly do not see Bobby as a person. They describe him as a monkey. So from both the city and the wilds, these kind of two separate places, both see Bobby as kind of less than, as weak, as not masculine pull your shirt tail up fat ass yeah Yeah. and and also like so it happens to repulsive people and it's perpetrated by repulsive people so this also you know um in terms of the kind of context of second wave feminism in women race and class i believe is the title by angela davis you know she has that remarkable chapter called the myth of the black male rapist and what i would argue is that rapists are always racialized even when they're white and perhaps especially in this in this book, right? James Dickey uses the word cracker once, though it is not impossible to imagine a book that's filled with that term um, because that's crackers the way that mountain men are described. But they use the, that word once. Lewis uses it when he's looking at the at the corpse of the man that he's just killed. That's a cracker. That's not that's not a person. And so you know it comes out around the time of uh, Angela Davis's The Myth of the Black Male Rapist, but it's a, it's also a racialized rapist and um, an othered rapist. Absolutely. So this happens. Lewis kills the guy. They're like, "What do we do?" Drew's like, "Well, yeah, we have to go into town." You're a reasonable man, Ed. This appeal to reason throughout that we've already touched on. 
Um, and they eventually, they, they do decide that they're just going to get rid of the body. They go further down. The, so they do that. They go further down the river. They hit these bad rapids and canoes. They get in a, a, I don't know what the equivalent of a car wreck, a canoe wreck. And Lewis breaks his leg. So he, the the macho man of the group, the survivalist, the one that was going to protect them all no longer can. As Nathaniel said before, he's kind of symbolically emasculated in this way because one because his masculinity is so tied to his physique and his body. And Drew gets killed. He's kind of picked off by the guy. And, and it's right before they hit the rapids. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Ed realizes, oh, he was going to line up and pick us all off. But because we hit these rapids, he no longer could get the shot. So after this, Lewis is bedridden, canoe ridden. And so Ed has to step up. He has to be the macho man now. And of course, how mm-hmm. he does that, he has this climb up this cliff that's described very, very sexually, like he's <laughs> consummating with nature. Um, he then kills the man. And there's this long, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna find the passage right now, but like it's a shift for him, right? He's like, I'm a I'm a killer now. And um kind of changes his outlook and, and and how he describes the man and then they finally kind of leave yeah and, and i'll say too that there are two men are immobilized in that sequence where ed is climbing up the cliff so the the strongest man lewis with the compound fracture in his leg which is disgusting in the movie he is out of commission the strongest man and then the weakest man bobby both are out of commission mm-hmm. and so you have to like it has to be uh someone between that because both men lack control in, in mm-hmm. different ways, right? Like Bobby lacks emotional control. And, and I think Lewis is constantly trying to test himself. So he also lacks emotional control in a different way. Right. You know, I don't mean to, I guess I, I would say two things. I don't mean to give anyone ideas, but uh, throwing a body into a river that's about to be dammed is apparently quite efficient. It's the, um, <laughs> it's the plot of Ron Rash's One Foot in Eden. And if you have, if you grew up in this area, it's also the source of a lot of myth. People say like, oh, we just started throwing things into the river that we didn't want to come back up when they were mm-hmm. damming the Great Lakes. And then the other, the other thing that I would note is that we, look, we all know the alpha male is a complete myth. Um, the notion right. of the alpha wolf, those are series mm-hmm. of studies done with very stressed wolves. Um, and there's no reason for that habitat stress. That's not actually natural to them. And the strongest and most useful wolf is often kind of an altruistic Mm-hmm. part of the pack that is drew not right. any of the other men um and so one of the things we actually have very strong association between drew and children the first way drew is described it says like he is the tenderest most loving father to his disabled child and then once they get up to the mountains we see him in this kind of uh communion with another disabled child the banjo yeah. boy yeah. um drew is the alpha <laughs> Right. In the true sense of it, you know, he's the altruistic wolf. Um, And once he's gone, uh, conditions on the ground are not so good. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. One of the things I kept thinking about Lewis while I was reading and then also when I watched the movie is that he's kind of full of shit. I've known people like this where they're like annoyingly confident and they're right about things just often enough to never question themselves but oh yeah i mean he is the the good guy with a gun right like after there's there's always a guy who's like i can shoot the tits off a target so i could take out a mass shooter 
bro, yeah. no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so. Exactly, exactly. Well, one of the things I would like to point out is how weirdly out of step the reality of this book and the movie are with their cultural footprint. And by that, I mean, to me, even before I read the book, I was I was familiar with two things about it, uh, dueling banjos and squeal like a pig. Those were the two things. And so I went into the book thinking, oh, this is going to be like a, a backcountry horror type thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And the actual experience of reading it and of watching the movie is very similar to my experience of watching Jaws when I finally watched Jaws. And I realized that, no, it's it's kind of an adventure story. It's like a boy's own adventure. But, you know, for men with these horrific elements in it and, and they're like thematically important for it, but it's not a horror it's not a backwoods horror story. It's a it's a more of an adventure. When did their uh, the hills have eyes come out? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Nineteen seventy seven. Okay. Okay. I was just wondering if that was before or after the movie, because because of the way you're describing it, it's like the the backwoods horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's another. That's another genre that it's sort of positioned in. It's the rape revenge movie, which is very seventy. Mm-hmm. Right. Genre. Yeah the death wish movies right you know charles bronson figure they remade death wish recently yeah i think they did yeah it's like why? i mean dude they could remake it over and over again and i wouldn't know because i'm not gonna watch it <laughs> not gonna watch it yeah it was yeah. just so but bizarre again, sorry but again <laughs> going back to the charles bronson figure in this movie the bronson figure is immobilized you don't right. get if we're gonna if we're gonna go comparing it to movies this is closer to what die hard right where the kind of everyday <laughs> guy winds up having to climb the tower and <laughs> shoot the guy I, I told myself two things since we're recording this on easter that i wasn't going to reference jesus christ superstar which goes <laughs> up at the same time <laughs> Um, but I also told myself that I was not going to reference the show that I'm currently binging, which is Yellow Jackets, um, okay. which is about teenage girls stuck in the wilderness, actually. Mm. And they're bow hunting each other before you know it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, the, but the queen bee, who's sort of the cultural, the cultural mythic equivalent of the alpha male, is useless yeah. uh, in this context, right? And at one point, I think it's Bobby who says, once Ed has to hunt the man, we're in Lewis Medlock country now. And why is Lewis Medlock, you know, half dead in a canoe covered with his own puke? Where are you going, city boy? We'll find it. It ain't nothing but the biggest river in the state. <laughs> These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. Ed Gentry, he runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dee. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests, talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds. Where you going? All right, I'm looking. These are the men who decided not to play golf that weekend. 
instead they sought the river. And we're back. Once again, this is the Projectionist Lending Library. I'm Nathaniel Booth. I'm Eric Klein. And I'm Jenny Lightweiskopf. And we are moving into discussing the movie adaptation of James Dickey's Deliverance. So I, I know Eric's got a lot of things he wants to say about this movie. Uh, apparently, apparently he spent a long, long night watching all the specials and features on the Blu-ray and preparing himself. You know, so. I normally never watch special features on things. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I, I finished the movie and, you know, so it just automatically goes because I was like rewatching the last like 45 minutes of it, basically mm -hmm. from the cliff climb to the end, I wanted to rewatch and it goes straight to the special features thing once the movie's over. And it has like this whole like, making of series which was really informative just kind of learning about the making of it and then it also had um a, a little 10 minute sort of featurette that was made contemporaneously with it and yeah. then it also had commentary with John Borman so yeah I did like kind of a deep dive in all of it one of the things that was fascinating to me was the little featurette that was made at the same time as the movie I think it would be used in like promotional material type stuff right um, and it opens up and it looks at each of the um, actors. And I think it starts with Ned Beatty, um, but it says like, this is Ned Beatty. He is an actor. This is John <laughs> Voight. He is an actor. This is Burt Reynolds. He is an actor. But interspersed between all of these, it would have shots from the gas station, the dueling banjo, the woman... You know the woman and the the woman that's looking out the window, the the woman with the sick child, obviously the boy playing the banjo, the guy with the hat that's doing his dancing, and the implication here, of course, is like these are all actors, but all of these they're all real people, right? And so, like right. in this featurette, and I think that's one of the things that the movie becomes so remembered for is that this sort of claim of, of authenticity and that all of these Southern freaks are real. Like we have, we've, yeah. we put actors in this like real freak show and like, you got to see it to believe it kind of thing. Right. No, that's, that's true. And I, I want to, um, I, I want to hear, I want to hear some of y'all's thoughts about, about the way that freakishness works in this movie. I've, I've got a couple of, thoughts that I want to add at some point about the way that joy works in this mm. movie. But I, I'm interested in hearing sort of expanding what's going on here. What what does the freak do for us in this movie? Well, I mean, like a lot of freak studies scholars, um, Rachel Adams, Elizabeth Gross, um, Rosemary Garland Thompson, they would they would argue that one of the sort of rhetorical functions of the freak is basically to refract humanness off of it. Like it's a negative signifier. It doesn't signify anything specifically. It just signifies not human. And I think what 
is going on here with all of the locals, locals in air quotes, some of the people used as locals were real local people, some of them were actors, but that it's, it's using this rhetoric of the freak to suggest to the wider audience that, you know, those backwards Southerners are not human. They're, we don't, we, we don't have any other word for them other than like, not human. It's also an encomium to a dying line of life, though, right? Mm-hmm. So as much as the freak is disavowed, um, there is also some admiration. And I and I misremembered the title of uh, James Dickey's poem about extinction, which is for the last Wolverine rather than to the last Wolverine. Um, but it ends with a beautiful line, Lord, let me die, but not die out. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, you know, this canoe trip can only happen in this kind of like one weekend like window of time because everything is about to be the rivers are about to be dammed and these lakes are about to be made for hydroelectric power um, which I think is that utterance it's good for hydroelectric power is probably like the third utterance in the film right um yeah still over the uh studio's logo um so you're getting this narrow slice in time where this world can be represented um and committed to film and so actually, you know, the shots of grave moving are stolen shots. It just happens to be happening where they are. Um, but the graves are being moved because the river's being dammed. And so mm-hmm. these towns are going to be destroyed. So a lot of the banjo picking, a lot of the, you know, um, kind of like see-through shacks, as we called them when I was a kid, like mm-hmm. a see-through shack is where you can see the light through. Those are going to be underwater. And in right. fact, in some places uh, in Oconee County in South Carolina and Raven County uh, in Georgia and near cashiers in North Carolina, I'm not sure of the name there, you know, you can take glass bottom boat tours and you'll be able to look down and see like the steeples of churches and that are just like under the water. Only wealthy people could afford to move their property, right? And the yeah. graves of their loved ones. So what you're seeing is the people who can't move, right? The water is mm-hmm. right at their heels. Uh, so they are freaks and they are disavowed, but they're also committed in a way to memory, to the page and to screen because it's the dying way of life. One thing that I want to sort of insist on here, and this is not to to like negate the other observations about uh, freakishness, it may even underline them, but two of the only moments of real human joy or real human kindness occur because of these uh, backwoods people. And I mean, first, the dueling banjo scene, which is, you know, for all the like row faster I hear banjos type jokes, right? That's actually a scene that's where two humans are connecting over music. The old guy start, who's been very surly, starts dancing it's a real it's a real moment of joy and then you get to the end of the movie after they've been through all of this horrible shit john voigt goes into the lodging house and he's surrounded by all of these country people and they start sharing food with him they start i mean they're responding to him in a kind way so, and first he weeps. he weeps right yeah and then he weeps yeah and so there's there's joy and there's compassion coming from from these these people who are who in other contexts are kind of in freaks, but it's not unmixed with a recognition that 
there's more humanity coming out of them than from any of the four main characters, except maybe Drew, who's dead by the end of the movie. Right. Well, I and think... By the way, it is Ed who cries, not Bobby. Right, yeah. Because it is yep. best... It is best to cry after victory. Um, right. <laughs> not even <laughs> yeah. assaulted, uh, to use uh, the term Susan Bordeaux writes about in the, mm. her book, The Male Body. So there, there's that moment of connection. And in fact, it is yeah. Bobby who tries to take the energy away from the crying because he says, there's something special about this food. He's like, this is good yeah. corn. And, and then they all start talking. They're like, yeah, this is good corn. No, I think this does actually underline it. There's definitely something in the rhetoric of the freak figure as well. Rosemary Garland Thompson talks about this in Extraordinary Bodies. But that it becomes this site of this site of like wonderment and awe simultaneously with disgust and fear. And the disgust and fear is often kind of anchored in our own precarity that at any given moment, like I could turn into that and and that's gross and that's fearful and blah, blah, blah. But then there's also something that is wondrous about it and i think and i think we do see that coupling as as y'all are pointing out we do see that coupling in the movie but i guess one of the things that i'm interested in as both of you know i've like talked about this especially with like james ag um and erskine caldwell and stuff but of course what happens with the freak figure and that's what i see happening in this movie and, and going back to that featurette that came with it is that the very nature of the sort of voyeur exhibitionist sort of interaction between audience and, and freak on the stage is inherently disempowering and devoicing the freak figure. They, they're not allowed to speak for themselves. They're not allowed to, you know, it's, it's the narrative around them. And, I, and that's what I see going on in this movie that even when we see these human moments with them, it's still all quite literally, obviously, through John Borman's voice. To speak to, the, to speak to the ambiguity of the freak, the way that we might all become freaked, right? I think it is much more ambiguous in the novel than in the movie about whether or not Ed has killed the right man. Yes. Mm. However, you know, the reason why you're not sure if he's killed the right man is because of the teeth. But, right. you know, he has this, it, you know, Ed carves into his mouth and and sees that he has like an upper plate that he can take out, and then he looks more like the toothless man. But it's a it's a prosthetic, right? So mm -hmm. we can become we can all become unfreaked if we just take out our prosthetic teeth, right? And, um, but I I, I do want to note that ambiguity. We are not sure that Ed has killed the right man, but he's killed a mountain man, and there's an interchangeability between mm -hmm. them. With the with the dueling banjo scene at the beginning, so they were when they were finding people to film this, like they went around the local area and, and found locals, and they wanted to find a boy that could play banjo for the scene. And one of the casting directors or something like came to John Borman was like, "Oh, I found like the perfect person. He's like or he's fifteen years old. He's in second grade, and he would be he would be perfect for it." And they bring him on, and we see that he has like a, a mental um, disability, learning disability. And the casting director is like, the only problem is, is he doesn't know how to play banjo. And so actually in this dueling banjo scene, it's just the boy sitting there, like holding the banjo. And they had, they, they had a different, they found a boy that could play banjo. And 
they have this other boy's hand up actually playing the banjo while this boy is literally just kind of sitting there smiling and and like looking at drew and and everybody um so it's like they literally just cast this kid for for him to just sit there and look at you and so Mm -hmm. in essence for him to just sit there for us to look at him yeah and i have in my notes here and i think i'm reading this right although who knows at this point uh so the first push into a close-up is on void at five minutes and 51 seconds in and then i have the words uh the the kid and then the guitar guy which is is true so apparently these are the first three close-ups we get in the movie is void and then the kid and then drew i think that's i think that's correct and i believe and uh, and and I believe Billy Redden, who plays Banjo Boy, who's still alive, um, has sometimes gives interviews um, and and notes he's he says he's able-bodied. Um, so uh, I think what the observations that they were making are about his face, not really. I mean, they are misassigning this category, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, they actually think he looks like a freak, and therefore he must actually be there must be also like hidden disabilities right and billy redden yeah he's alive and he's working at a at a walmart in raven county Uh, i just Mm -hmm. i just looked him up and so he's you know he's 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 still where he's from he also appeared in tim burton's movie uh big fish but he hasn't acted a lot you know another another movie about southern freaks right what are some of the major differences that you noted in the movie versus the book because as we said at the beginning of the show simply kind of plot wise there's not a like especially for the like the actually being on the river plot wise there's not much that's very different right so how do we notice these differences because they are quite different objects so um i'll say one thing to nathaniel's point about the music so you know ronnie cox is a, is a who plays drew is a singer songwriter in the movie and now in the book what's interesting is that um drew does not play uh, like traditional mountain American roots music. Um, it says his hero is Dave Van Ronk, who's just like classic kind of Greenwich Village bohemian type, right? So mm-hmm. it's more likely that uh, that Drew would be like, let's all sit around and play some, you know, sing some Dylan, right? Right. So here he's the American roots guy instead. So that's different. And I would also note, like, even by the time that Dickie is writing this, like a lot of the people who are living up in this part of Appalachia are not native. They're like, as we called them when I was growing up, river rats. They're hippie kids who like mm-hmm. moved up there. There's a lot of like kind of back to the land bohemia that's happening in this area already by the time Dickie's writing. Um, and that is referenced just once at the end of the book where Ed says, you know, I can't go back to that place. There are a couple of things Ed can't do. He can't um, sleep with the girl that he meets at the beginning because he says her eyes live in the night river in the land of impossibility. And he can't go back to that place. It's been, mm-hmm. it's underwater and right? it's a place that you'll never see again, but it's also getting popular with the young kids, he says. Yeah, so. yeah Asheville, North Carolina. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> they turned it into a like little hippie metropolis. <laughs> right. And the, you know, the, the, the road that connects Clayton, uh, Clayton, Georgia, which is in, Ra- in Raven County, one of the towns that they actually set up in to um, Greenville, South Carolina is called Warrior Woman ride drive which is like that's the name a hippie would give to right (laughs) right the name of mountain man would give (laughs) one of the things that is shared 
a theme that is shared between the book and the movie is this idea of this whole area being put underwater. All right. So it's a vanishing landscape. But I really feel like the movie foregrounds it in a way that the book doesn't necessarily because the book, as we talked about, has the whole like gray flannel suit opening. So the book is really foregrounding this idea of the suburban man wanting to escape from suburbia and go out to the wild and blah, blah, blah. It's got some lines about everything's going to be underwater. He sees the map, et cetera. The movie opens with dialogue about how all this land's going to go away, coupled with visuals of them preparing this dam. Again, not to say that that the sort of ecological theme is not present in the book, but the movie pushes it to the very beginning, where right. the first thing you're thinking about when the movie starts isn't the desperation of these men to get away from suburbia. The first thing you're thinking about is, oh, wow, this river is about to be destroyed and it's going to be replaced by a lake. And I think that that runs – that to me, that fundamentally changes the way that we interact with the movie versus how we interact with the book because the movie doesn't want you to forget in a way that you can with the book. I think you're right. I think that the, the movie definitely foregrounds the aspect of Anthropocene human control over nature um, in the book. And in the book, it seems to do it – one of the – places that stood out to me the most where I'm like, oh, like eco-criticism lights going off mm -hmm. is it's it's pretty early. It's before they have any encounters. It's just like when they're canoeing and everything is, you know, more or less fine. And there's, it's like a, a bottle or something. But Lewis says, I, I'm not going to find the page right now, but Lewis says plastic. So it's more of like a disregard in the book as opposed to the movie where it's like, yeah, like control and getting rid of mm -hmm all of this. And, and that was a really deliberate point of Borman's. I mean, when he read the book, apparently like in one of his first meetings with James Dickey, and they had a very complex relationship in the development of this movie, but he said, no, like the central kind of death in this, in this book is the death of nature. Like that's from the get-go, even when he read the book, like that's what he wanted the movie to be. About James, more. James Dickey is a is like a, a remarkable figure as well, and he plays the sheriff, right? So right, um, yeah. And that, and he actually plays it with a kind of freakery as well. Like he's kind of baring his teeth like a dog the entire time, right? But, but, but Dickey is a sort of natural performer, despite the fact that this is his only movie role. And um, you know, he apparently there's a story that he told John Borman. He apparently leaned into him and said everything that happens in this book really happened to me. And then they got in a canoe together and John Borman was like, this guy has never been in a canoe before. <laughs> and it's actually Pat Conroy, his student, um, and also a, a Southern novelist mm -hmm. who said, you know, with, from the moment this movie came out, I watched him going over the falls, right? Which is sort of about his relationship to his fame, right? It's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he had like, he already had like sort of like significant drives, right? That were um, painful and dangerous to the people in his life. And uh, I just, he, he but he becomes a celebrity writer, which is dangerous. Uh, but uh, his son, Christopher Dickey tells a story how, you know, he was famous with a very like narrow sector of people. So Christopher Dickey tells a story how they were walking through an airport once and they saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was at that point um, still Lou Alcindor. 
And Dickie had by this point begun kind of like dressing like a mountain man to sort of fulfill the stereotype. And, uh, you know, he's like in a like kind of fringed leather jacket and like a bolo tie and, a, uh, you know, expensive gear that no mountain man actually wears. And <laughs> James Dickey just assumes that uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is going to recognize him. So he like goes and says like, a, you know, like, a, do you autograph something for my son? And and according to Christopher Dickey, you know, then Lou Alcindor says, keep walking, cowboy. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> you know, he is performing. Right. But right. Um, mm-hmm. he told he actually told each one of the actors, as well as John Borman, all individually and all of them. He was like, don't tell anybody this, but this all happened to me. He told every single one of them that he also apparently terrified the shit out of the four actors on the movie to the point that because he was pretty when they first started filming he was actually in a little bit more involved and on set and everything but he would lash out at the actors and he had this sort of menacing presence as they kind of describe it and Borman had to be like we need you to leave the set like we'll have you come back to play the sheriff at the end because he originally he was going to be Dickie was going to be with them the whole like the whole film and and to be mm. clear they do go through this really difficult section of river to make this movie i mean they they mm. do go through all of this and some of the stories they tell about it's like wow that was pretty harrowing i mean yeah um burt reynolds broke his tailbone right mm-hmm yeah. And but then Dickie like breaks Borman's teeth by punching him in the face. If the story is correct. So I think everyone everyone left with an injury. Everybody left so with what an injury. I'm what I'm hearing from this is that the the characters in the book are all kind of insufferable. The characters in the movies are all kind of insufferable. And the actors and people creating it are all kind of insufferable. And then and it people- still winds up being really good. And then, frankly, like people who um, who love this movie and think people they, who love it are also who think they could pass the test of climbing up a cliff are the most inseparable people of all. Yes, <laughs> I could do that. Yeah, you can't do that. Um, um, yeah. The well, let's talk about that. The cliff climbing scene and yeah, how that's yeah. different in the movie and the book. I will say. I had mentioned this when we were kind of pretexting and stuff. This has been my first time back to Deliverance since, like, probably coursework of PhD. So mm-hmm. it's it's been a minute. In between there, for the book I'm working on, I did a, a deep dive into Zardoz. So when I, with Borman, like I'm like, you like you do, like I go to Zardoz for for whatever reason when they're when he's climbing that cliff and when he's up at the top like kind of hugging it it just looked like zardoz to me that's where i was like oh my gosh because normally it's like deliverance to zardoz how the hell does that happen but i think the reason is is because they actually shot that during the day and so the the night sky on it because the way that i saw the zardoz it has like these weird outlines around everything that it makes things kind of sparkly and it's because they shot it during the day and they like edited like almost like a matte night sky over the top of it so it gives Mm -hmm. it this kind of even though it was all filmed outside it has this sort of studio look to it it is a like physically quite like aesthetically quite beautiful movie right um and 
And in fact, like, you know, uh, I don't know if this is true, Eric, you've done the deep dive, but there are people, who, people have claimed like they tried to make the river look ugly and they're sort of like a kind of like brownish cast to a lot of it, like a 70s kitchen, right? Um, mm. <laughs> that you can see the like, kind of clear blue of the water. But, you know, there's also claims that it actually drove tourism to the area. Mm. Um, you you hear people say that. And then you also hear people say like, oh, it drove tourists away from the um, from the, uh, the yeah. place. But, but I wouldn't know, like hydroelectric power, to go back to the previous point, hydroelectric power is one of the purposes of these lakes, but it is not the only one. Tourism is critically important to these regions. And I mean, tourism is, um, you know, one of the top three industries in every state of the former Confederacy. I hate that designation, but, um, you know, it's the term Karen Cox uses in her book about tourism to the South. And, uh, you know, tourism is important. So, you know, when you're driving through this area, you'll see like, billboards that are just like the billboard is a is the length of it is a catfish and mm -hmm. it'll say actual size right and yeah, so there's yeah. you know throughout this part throughout south carolina and georgia where there are all these man-made lakes um it's about driving people there and they drive there really fast right <laughs> <laughs> i mean and if you're just like falling um from a canoe faster <laughs> faster by right. far yeah yeah, what he's like? Why you gotta drive so fast, Lewis? This this movie also like is the movie that kind of turned Burt Reynolds into a sex symbol. He did the centerfold shortly after this. Um, in fact, when they were casting, Burt Reynolds is the person that the studio was most reluctant about um, because like he had had these three kind of not great TV shows. They're like, no, he's a washed up TV actor. Like, why do we want him? And and you know, Borman really wanted him and um, they him. And, and so this kind of rejuvenated his career. John Voigt did not want to do the movie and, and Borman talked him into it. And he specifically didn't want to do it because of the rape scene. He didn't mm. want to be involved with it. Um, and then later, at least according to Borman, uh, Borman's like, and, and then always after that, John Voigt would always call me and thank me for saving his career because he was going to get out of active and all of this stuff and it's like okay okay john like it's a weird walk from midnight cowboy to deliverance right since mm. one actually involved one is about his youth right and like mm. vitality and and kind of motion to the city and the other is about like age and crisis right. and flight from the city um right and i would i would say too like what i what stands out to me about burt reynolds um, is that, you know, no mustache, right? So uh, his signature right. look isn't really in place yet. Um, you know, mustache for John Void, so his signature look is also, like, disguised. Um, mm -hmm. Ronnie Cox, uh, not primarily an actor, but rather a song a songwriter. And then it's Ned Beatty's first role. Um, and just as I think Bobby is overtaken, like, he is, like, he is the rape to them, Mm -hmm. I don't think Ned Beatty really reached full potential either because of this. I think there's a fair bit of typecasting. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think he's I think he's really brilliant in this movie. Um, oh, I think so. Yeah. yeah and, and you know, one of the the features of 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 Bobby as a person is that he and Ed can look at each other in a social setting and know they shouldn't take the shit seriously. Mm -hmm. And the, the shit they really shouldn't take seriously is Lewis Medlock, right? So right. Well, I think a skepticism and an irony uh, to to Bobby that's quite difficult to play, and Ned Beatty does it, right? Mm -hmm. He does it quite quite well. I've been, I've become radicalized on the on the uh, on the subject of typecasting because you guys referenced the Coen Brothers, so I'll just note right. Tim, 
Tim Blake Nelson um, just wrote a novel and you know, he always seems to get cast as the hillbilly. He, I think I've seen him play a Klansman three times. I just read him uh, in an interview say, I wish people knew I am 100% Jewish. So guys, let Tim Blake Nelson play a rabbi. No more rednecks. <laughs> and writing a movie about a rabbi would not be out of the ordinary for the cohen brothers come on like make this happen um we actually we actually just recently watched oh brother where art thou because we couldn't i don't i don't even remember why but elizabeth and i kept on saying back and forth to each other we thought you was a you was a toad Like, there was like a solid week where we just kept on saying that back and forth to each other. And we're like, I guess we got to watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> going back where, to Where were we going with that? Yeah, like what, uh, what happened to these guys after? I, I mean, maybe there, maybe it's a way to talk about the legacy of the film. Mm. Um, yeah. So the redneck rapists uh, are just transferred easily from cultural product to cultural product, right? Pulp Fiction is the most memorable, I think. Yeah. It is, it is and, and, and Tarantino has referenced it repeatedly and one of the ways it has sort of circulated in the culture is tarantino in in true like gross fashion adds the gimp to the Mm -hmm. to the rape scene right who he says he has said in um in subsequent interviews like the gimp the the enslaved person whatever however you would describe him i don't know he says he's a man they've raped before who just like sticks by them because he 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 loved it. Just gross Tarantino references, right? And I I would say like I love Tarantino. Uh, I love him post Pulp Fiction. But the the redneck rapists travel and uh, they travel in a lot of cultural products. Um, to that point as well, by the way, Dickie wanted Sam Peckinpah, sort of uh, Tarantino, the Tarantino of his time, to direct mm. this. You know, like Mister Blood and Guts. So yeah. okay, we will be. Returning to Tarantino later this season, we're going to have an episode on Jackie Brown and Rum Punch. I mean, the legacy of the movie, I think it's one of those products where the legacy of the movie overshadows the movie itself. Mm -hmm. As Nathaniel said, the, the, you know, row faster I hear banjo singing, like we've seen that on bumper stickers, like, you know what I mean? Like this, I, this idea of the banjo and the river and stuff like and the squeal like a pig and and all of these things is what's remembered, not the eco-critical commentary, not like the commentary on masculinity, not the commentary on, you know, the civilized versus the uncivilized, but just like these kind of spectacle moments. I think you're right. It's, it's one of those movies that's become uh, mimetic in, in a way. It's a meme more than yeah. a movie for a lot of people. That's certainly how I first encountered it. And I think that's how a lot of people encounter it now. Right. And, and you know, and and of course, like the, the mountain men move from text to text. Mm-hmm. So not just Tarantino, but also yeah. Pat Conroy's Prince of Tides has a rape scene that directly echoes it. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're, I think they travel. Yeah. The same way that the rural accent travels. Same, yeah. It's yeah. terrifying mountain men travel. Yeah. You take this man down out of the mountains and turn him over to the sheriff, there's going to be a trial, all right. A trial by jury. So what? We killed him, Andrew. Shot him in the back. A mountain man. A cracker. It gives us something to consider. All right. Consider it. We're listening. Shit, all these people are related. 
But goddamn, if I want to come back up here and stand trial with this man's aunt and his uncle, maybe his mom and his daddy sitting in the jury box. What do you think, Bobby? How about you, Ed? I don't know. I really don't know. Now, you listen, Lewis. I don't know what you got in mind, but if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now, that much law, I do know. This ain't one of your fucking games. All right, we're back. Uh, this is the Projectionist Lending Library. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be signing out. Before we do, we always like to give our recommendations of what we've been enjoying reading lately. Uh, once again, thank you so much to Jenny Lightwise Goff for joining us today to talk about deliverance. You had far more interesting things and intelligent things to say about it, I think, than uh, either of us did. So we really appreciate you being here. Jenny, do you want to kick us off? What, what have you been What have you been enjoying lately? What would you recommend to our to our listeners? So I I try to read novelists that have nothing to do with my area of specialty. <laughs> um, so I did uh, I, I binged all the work of uh, the most recent Nobel Prize winner, whose name I'll pronounce in English and then badly in French, um, Annie Erno, oh, Annie uh, Erno. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's E-R-N-A-U-X. She is uh, the recent, uh, she's the first French woman to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, I really liked her book, A Simple Passion, which is about uh, an affair she has with the Soviet ambassador in 1989. Uh, not at all important year in his life, obviously. Um, and um, she is kind of relevant to the subject. I mean, she's a French writer from the provinces, Normandy rather than Paris. Uh, so she's, you know, kind of like never had the cultural importance uh, that the Nobel Prize conferred on her really beautiful spare writer. Um, and then I would just actually recommend everyone read James Dickey's poetry. Um, it's remarkable. My recommendation is actually two books of poetry. April is National Poetry Month, so I've been trying to fit some poetry in there where, when and where I can. So the two I'm going to be recommending, one is uh, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, I think it's in 2021, 20, Frank Sonnets by Diane Seuss. Because I, you know, am influenced by a lot more free verse poetry, it's not often I'll kind of go into a book of poetry that's in these really kind of structured ways. And it's really refreshing the way that she works with the sonnet and she talks about a lot of different social issues. She compares like, you know, one of the reasons she's working in the sonnet is like poverty. You have to learn to do more with less and stuff like that. Um, and the other one is um, the, the, the second collection of poems by Caleb Ray Kendrilly called all the gay saints. Um, I teach their first collection of poetry. Uh, what runs over, which is a memoir in verse, um, and they are a winner of the Saturnalia Books Poetry Prize for transgender poetry. They're a winner of the Whiting Award. And their, their second collection, All the Gay Saints, is more just really beautiful stuff. Uh, uh, Kendrilly has a really excellent way of being able to kind of really combine pleasure and pain, like, to get, like simultaneously existing mm -hmm. at all times. So those two books I've been reading and I, I enjoy and I would recommend them. Well, I've, I've got a, a book and a TV series. So... Okay. 
The book is Arms of Nemesis by Stephen Saylor. It is a, a murder mystery set in ancient Rome around the time of the Spartacus Rebellion. And so uh, oh, I'm going I, down the Spartacus I, rabbit hole. Again, I'm going down the Spartacus rabbit hole. Yeah. I read Sailor's first book in this series a while back and finally got around to reading Arms of Nemesis. He, he's just really good, good voice. Uh, I mean, it feels like being in ancient Rome. For, for all I know about ancient Rome, it feels right. Uh, it is enjoyable. So I've got that. In terms of TV series, I'm not going to recommend the Star Spartacus although I might. Instead, I'm going to say the HBO Perry Mason series is in the middle of season two right now, and it is phenomenal. It is so good. It's much better than I thought it would be back when the show started, and I'm I'm digging it. So that's that's my two recommendations. Seconded. It's good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll check that out. We we have been watching the last season of succession which Mm. if you haven't jumped on the succession bandwagon definitely check it out so um thank you again jenny for joining us today it's really a pleasure having you on um listeners we'll be back soon and our next one is going to be well continuing with the freaks i guess right we're going to be doing nightmare alley nightmare alley yeah perfect uh well we hope we will join us then we will talk to y'all next time thank you so much take care y'all That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, you can email us at projectionistlendinglibrary at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at PLLibPodcast or on Instagram at PLLPodcast. Our cover art is by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at designedbykit. The music is Feudin' Banjos by Arthur Smith and Don Reno, and is freely available on the Internet Archive. Have a good one. <laughs>